Our Lord, we will crown you on that great day with all of the glory that is due your name, which is everything. And our Father, we will delight to worship you and the Lamb upon the throne, you who created all things through the Son, you who created all things for the Son revealed in Christ, and all of eternity will be a celebration, a joyful rejoicing in all that you have done for us as we delight in your glory, as we come to appreciate and taste and the wonders of your beauties and of your holiness. O oh Lord, fill us with a sight of that day. For this world is hard, it's full of troubles, discouragements, disappointments, not only of what we see around us, but what we know to be in us and how we long to be made perfect, conformed to the body of your glory, our risen Christ. Encourage us with this. Keep us faithful. Keep us pursuing that for which we have been laid a hold of, which is that resurrection glory. And use even this morning as we come near now to the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has reminded us that death is imminent, but that causes us just all the more to look forward and rejoice in him who overcame death for us and has promised us a future in resurrected bodies forever. So we ask you now to open up our eyes and our ears to your word, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. As you know, we're coming to the end of this uh, great letter. We will... Uh, Begin the last section this morning, which is in verses 9 through 14. We'll look at the first part of that uh, this morning, and then we'll finish it uh, for real uh, next time, next week. Uh, this morning, we'll cover verses 9 through 12. Next week, we'll look at verses 13 and 14. And to introduce uh, what we'll consider this morning, let me just remind us what is an obvious truth to many of us, both in terms of our observation of the world and in terms of our own experience of life. And that is this, simply that we tend to extremes. We always tend to one extreme or another. We tend to react uh, very often and in our reactions uh, go to extremes. One of the ways that that has happened within the church, within the, the gospel, is that we tend to swing between the extremes of being overly committed to doctrine or being uh, overly, uh, overly emphasized, uh, not merely doctrine, but the fruit really of the gospel in terms of how we love one another and should be winsome with the world and so on and so forth. And there is a tendency at times to... Uh, let the emphasis of one overshadow the other. So, for example, if you are some who get, have an emphasis on doctrine, tend to be lacking in gentleness and compassion and love. That sometimes can happen. Uh, those who emphasize so much the fruit of what the Christian life should be in terms of how we love one another and are doing good in the world and so forth, tend to minimize doctrine and tend, tend to downplay it and say that it's not as important. But Scripture does neither. In fact, these are inextricably bound. The greatest example of that is, well, all of Scripture, but particularly what is revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of truth, and yet he is the embodiment of love. And in fact, what God doesn't let us do is ever pit one against the other. 
In other words, to be highly committed to the truth and to be highly committed to doctrine also implies, if it's done in truth, that we are committed to obedience to that doctrine. We are committed to the obedience to what God reveals to us in his word, and therefore it humbles us and makes us more uh, useful in this world and so on and so forth. So doctrine and love, doctrine and truth and the character of Christ even salvation and everything related to sanctification go hand in hand. And that is a, a general uh, introduction to where Solomon is going to take us this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And, and the main idea in this concluding section is this, that diligence and devotion are marks of a God-centered life. It's not merely activity, but it is being faithful to what God has entrusted to us, and that faithfulness is to be fueled by a devotion to God. Now, we'll break it up into two simple sections. One is that God requires diligence with his gifts. That's verses 9 through 12. And then secondly, God requires devotion in our diligence. And we can see an example of both success and failure in in the life of our preacher, the life of Solomon himself, who wrote these words for us. Let's let's read, however, before we look at this more closely. We'll begin in verse 9. We'll go ahead and read through the end of the passage. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Go back up to verse 9 and let's consider first that God requires diligence with his gifts. God requires diligence with his gifts. God gives us opportunities. He gives us abilities. He gives us ways in which we can serve him and do good in this world. But everything that God gives us comes with it inherently also a responsibility, a responsibility for us to put into practice and exercise what we have received in faithfulness and obedience to him who gave it. And that's the general idea of what I want to point out here in verse 9, namely that God's gifts require our diligence. We know well the story of Solomon, that Solomon was a man, he was a youth, he was in the sense that he was inexperienced in the ways of politics and of leading a nation, and so very early on God appeared to him and God asked Solomon to make a request, and the request Solomon made was that God would give him wisdom so that he could lead his people because it was a great task and he knew he needed the enablement of God to do that. God answered his prayer, as we remember, and he gave him wisdom, and he said, but because you have not asked for riches and other things, I'm going to give you that as well. And so we had this incredible blessing of God on the life of Solomon, who excelled in everything intellectual and was prosperous and flourishing in every way in this world and extracted from this life everything that's humanly possible to in terms of what this world has to offer. He was given much. He was given much by God. He was given wisdom. 
He was given opportunity and he was given ability. However, the gift was of no usefulness if he did not apply it to his responsibility as a king and if he did not improve upon it. And so in addition to being a wise man, the wisdom was the gift of God, it was the innate ability, but to that he added, notice, teaching the people knowledge. He added pondering, he added searching out, he added arranging all of the things that he had written so that it would be put in delightful words and that it would be received as truth correctly communicated. And in this way, his his life was then, in this, in this narrow sense, in terms of this obedience to what he received, was an outworking of diligent application of the gift he had received from God. He taught the people knowledge, it says. Now Solomon was given an incredible breadth of mind. And again, we won't repeat all of the details about Solomon's life, but let's remind you the way that Scripture records this breadth of mind. It says in verse 1 Kings chapter 24, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read this briefly. But it says in verse 29 of 1 Kings 4, God gave Solomon wisdom, very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. And his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all of the sons of the east and all of, east and all of the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all men. It says later, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, cedar that is in Lebanon, hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds birds and creeping things and fish and men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom he had an incredible breadth of mind now when he says that he gave him wisdom and with somebody this gift of intellect it is essentially just to say this that he had an innate ability to look out into the world and to understand it to remember to correlate truths and things that he knew to retain information and to know that the way that what he retained related to everything else that he saw in the world, that's a part of wisdom. Not merely the ability to accumulate knowledge, but to apply it rightly to the situations of life and to life in general. We saw an example of that in the very beginning of his, not ministry, but his kingship, as it were, with the story of the two women, you might well remember that, who were arguing over a son. Each of them claimed uh, to be the mother. Solomon said, well, there's only one way we can decide this. Cut the child in half, divide it in two. One of the mothers said, oh, that's a good idea. One of the mothers said, no, let the other have it. And he knew who the mother was, the one who had an affection for the child, the one who did not want the child to be harmed. And therefore, this wise act of Solomon was known throughout the land. That was the innate ability that God gave him to, in the moment, see a situation and make a decision that was wise, that understood the essence of the situation and was able to act in a way that exposed the reality behind the deception that was presented to him. He pondered and he searched out. That simply means that he thought about things. He searched for understanding. He applied, again, diligence to what he was given. And then he made sure that whatever he learned, he communicated effectively. Again, that's verse 10. He sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. So the point here simply that I wanted to observe is that his effort in understanding, his effort in growing in what he was given, was an essential part to the gift being used for the purpose for which God gave it. It required Solomon to act. 
And the general point for our notice is that God's gift of ability requires our work of a diligence to improve upon, to make it useful to others. The ultimate goal of whatever God gives us is to be useful to others. It is to build up other people, particularly as Christians, to build up the church. To have ability without effort equals only wasted opportunity. It equals only wasted opportunity and even shows a kind of ingratitude toward God. Many of us know people who have innate ability, who are naturally kind of intelligent and smart, who are naturally athletic, who are naturally whatever. And yet it's never developed because they never put in the time and they never put in the, the work to make what they had excellent, to make it be everything that it could be. And therefore they were never actually useful in the way that they could be, though they have much uh, potential. We see that all the time. And we see, conversely, those who maybe don't have as much natural ability, but nonetheless work hard and achieve great things in life because they maybe had a small amount. You have to have that. Uh, but yet their work overcame whatever they uh, lacked in natural ability and they were able to do much. Again, we see that in athletics and academics and those kind of things all the time. So it's an important matter of success in life and success in being faithful to the Lord Jesus. While every person has a natural ability or skill, the, I, the point is, is that we must use it and develop it, that I want to observe here, we must use it and develop it in order for it to be useful to God's purposes. Now, we see examples of this in the Old Covenant all the time. Here in the life of Saul, we see the Spirit of God come upon people and enable them to do things to achieve God's purpose. We were not going to turn to all of these. I which just mentions one of the greatest ways that I, I think that's displayed is uh, when they were building the temple, it says that there were men who were endowed with skill by God and then they were moved by the Spirit to apply that skill to the building, to the weaving of the garments of the priesthood and to building certain aspects of the temple. But in the new covenant, this finds its ultimate expression. One of the realities of the new covenant is that every single person in the new covenant is indwelled by the Holy Spirit and has been placed in the body of Christ for a purpose, and that is to build up the body of Christ. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian, you have been given an ability by God. Maybe not the wisdom that Solomon had, he was unique in God's program, but you have been given an ability by God that requires you to exercise diligence in it. That's a simple observation I want to make here. That if you belong to Christ, you have a gift from the risen Christ that is meant for the good of his people. Let me read just one text to you. Out of Ephesians, it says, When he ascended, speaking of Christ, when he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. He goes on to say that each of us are a part of this body and we are fitted together in such a way that this body grows, he says in verse 16, by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. That's how the body builds itself up in love. And I would just make this, again, observation here is that Solomon had a gift of a wise man, but if that meant he simply sit in the inner room of his chambers as king and did nothing with it, then it wasn't profitable. It wasn't useful to what God intended it to be. But because Solomon did use it, we have the book of Ecclesiastes. We have the book of Proverbs. We have the book of the Song of Solomon. We have the fruit of his diligence. And it's no different with us, beloved, 
If you have a gift from God, if you are a Christian, you do have a gift from God. You do have a way that God has uniquely designed you, that he has uniquely shaped you, that he has uniquely equipped you to serve every, to serve within the body of Christ. And so the question is, how are you doing that? How are you improving upon what God has given you? And it's necessary. It's necessary. It takes work. It takes effort. But the fruit is that we know God's purpose for us. Look at verse 10. It says, the preacher then, so he, so he didn't just have wisdom. He took what he had and he taught the people. He didn't just have wisdom, but he pondered and searched. He used his intellect to learn more. And then he didn't just in his learning let it be for his own benefit, but he arranged many proverbs. And he did so in such a way that he would write truth correctly. Now, this is really a wonderful statement regarding the nature of Scripture and the way God chooses to accomplish his purposes among men. Now, again, I want to just make several observations. First of all, note this. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. This is the first observation, that God works through men. He works through human agency, if you want a fancy way to say it. He works through those he created and called and raised up to accomplish his purposes. God could have simply sent an angel to speak from heaven, but he raised up a man, Solomon. He gifted him with his spirit. He shaped him in his life and his opportunities, his personality. He used his uniqueness to write in such a way that it would serve God's purposes among his people. Now, this might seem... Rather obvious, but I do want us to get behind the scene and just consider one simple point on this. We won't spend a lot of time on it, but it is this. That an essential element to God's sovereignty, to God's sovereign purposes, to God fulfilling his sovereign purposes is this. That he always works through means, not apart from them. Sometimes we think of sovereignty as, well, God's going to just do what he's going to do. It doesn't really matter what I do, but Solomon here argues even against that. God wanted to communicate the message of Ecclesiastes, everything we've been looking at for months. He did it through Solomon. He did it through Solomon working hard to write words that would be clear. God wanted to give his people wisdom about how fearing God works itself out in the life of his people. And so Solomon arranged many proverbs and he gave us the book of Proverbs. God works through means. He works through men. It does matter what we do. It does matter the effort we put in. It does matter our faithfulness. It's an essential part of how God accomplishes his purposes. And I want us just to notice that here. It matters in evangelism. If we take this to the uttermost, it means that some will say, well, it doesn't really matter if I evangelize. God is going to save whom he's going to save. Well, that's wrong because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so how will they hear if no one is sent? If no one goes, how will they hear? Yes, God is going to save who he's going to save, but he's going to do it through the faithfulness of his people preaching the word of God. Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect in 2 Timothy chapter, I think verse 10 of chapter 2. God comforts his people through the, with the comfort they've received as they walk through trials by faith in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, so that you may comfort others with the comfort with which you have been comforted. We encourage one another. We comfort one another in trials. Why? Because God exercises his own loving care to his people through his people. And on it goes. God cares for the needs of his people through the sacrifice of his people, seeing a brother in need and in love reaching out to meet that need. 
The simple point is this, that God accomplishes his purposes sovereignly through his people. Our faithfulness to be diligent with what he's given us to do is important. It is a necessary part of his work. And so again, how are you serving? How are you being used to build up the body of Christ is the question. But note, secondly, this, that Solomon's effort was not merely to understand, but to communicate effectively. And I mentioned that once, but here I highlight it again, that it was an essential part of God's design to serve his people. Everything that Solomon did in writing, in all of his writings, was meant to make sure that what God had given him would be laid out before the people of God in a way that it would be the most effective for them. This was the point of all of his writing. He says at the beginning of Proverbs, let me just remind you of this. He says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion, A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire counsel, and so on he goes. He's writing so that the people may be wise. He's writing so that they might know what it means to live a life of wisdom rather than of foolishness, to avoid foolishness and choose the path of righteousness. He wasn't merely wise in that he had an incredible intellect, But he sought to make sure that he saw past things. He looked through them so that we could have understanding. And he made sure that he did it in a way that was acceptable. He said in Proverbs 15, 2, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge pleasing, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. A wise person knows not merely the facts of a situation, doesn't have merely knowledge, but has a concern to make that knowledge acceptable. Think of the ways we see examples of this even in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the way that he communicated phrases that stick with us. So, for example, vanity to vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. That stays in your mind. He could have simply said that it's important to live in community and serve one another, but he said a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. That's a phrase that stays with you. He says the one who loves money will not be satisfied with money. In other words... If we put our affections on anything other than God, it will only leave us empty. In Proverbs, he often said things in pithy statements, which is the very idea of a proverb, to stay with us. As a man thinks within himself, so he is. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Look to the ant, O sluggard. A fool is always right in his own eyes. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. This is the fruit of what Solomon here is identified as putting his effort and his energy into, he sought to find delightful words to write words of truth correctly. This is so important in how we communicate with one another and how we communicate the word of God and the truth of the gospel. I think an example of this from church history that was, was reminded of comes from Jonathan Edwards. Some of you know Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was uh, an instrumental preacher and in New England, uh, instrumental in God's work of bringing about the, the Great Awakening. And he said this, he's, he was known for a lot of things, his towering intellect and so forth, but one of the things we was known for was the, the power of his imagery that impressed truth upon the heart and the mind in such a way that it, it stirred up 
of his hearers. He said of this about himself. He said, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided that they are affected by nothing but the truth. In other words, he said, I want to write truth, words of truth correctly. I want to communicate truth correctly. I don't want to just give bare facts, but I want that truth to be felt. I want it to be understood. This was demonstrated most famously in a sermon or one of his most famous sermons, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Now, it's kind of unfortunate that he's known mostly through that because he's often pictured as this sort of austere and fire and hell and brimstone kind of preacher, when in fact, uh, this sermon is that in some ways, and it was used by God, but he was a very humble and a very gentle and a very gracious man. And he wrote sermons as equally as power, such as heaven is a world of love and so on. But listen to the way that he demonstrates precisely what Solomon is talking about here. He's, he's in this section, uh, trying to give a picture of the predicament of the unconverted person. And so he says it in these words. Unconverted men, and think about the way that he says this, the imagery that it puts into your head and the way that it would stick within the conscience. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they won't bear their weight and these places are not seen. He later says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into fire. He has a purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. He sought to take the truth of the dangerous predicament of the unconverted sinner and to remind them of the precarious situation that they were in, that at any moment God could take them out and hold them accountable. Of course, an ultimate example of this is the Lord Jesus, who spoke with such authority and power and in such an economy of words. Indeed, this is often a marvelous characteristic of the the ministry of Jesus and of Scripture in general, in that so much is said in so few words. God is very, very careful to communicate to us not merely bare facts. He could have given us a very dry and a boring book, but he has given us the Bible. And he has spoken in a way that the way that he communicates is meant very much to impress upon us profound truths. I always think of the story of Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Uh, To me, that is one of the most profound passages in all of Scripture. And think about it. Within Genesis 3, 1 through 6, and the fall of man into sin and the temptation of the devil, you have the essential error and draw to sin from not only in our personal lives when we sin, but every movement and every ideology and every false kingdom throughout the history of the world. And it's contained there in its essential form in about six verses of a story of a woman talking to a snake. That's fascinating to me. Fascinating. But it pictures the spirit of what marked the ministry of Solomon as well. He knew truth. He was diligent to take the wisdom that he had given to communicate what he had received in a way that was the most effective. This is the character of God. It is the way that he ministers his will to us. Let's take this even deeper. In verse 11, he says, The words of wise men, then, are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. 
Uh, They are given by one shepherd. The words of wise men are like goads. They're like goads. The idea here is that God's word is designed to convict us and to establish us. His word is designed to do everything that we need as fallen creatures in learning the truth and walking in righteousness. It's meant to wound us and to heal us, to keep us from sin and to establish us in righteousness. And so he says in verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads. What is a goad? Anybody know what a goad is? Okay, a goad is a long stick. It's a long stick anywhere from seven to 10 feet long, and it has either a nail or some sharp point at the end. And the purpose of a goad, it was used by a shepherd to poke the oxen uh, as they were traveling along the way. And when one would stray off the path, then the shepherd would take the goad and he'd poke him and, he'd, and then he'd come back on the path. This is an illustration here of how the wisdom of God's word is meant to shepherd his people. When we ourselves, like sheep, it's described, or we are described as going astray, God's word pulls us back. It convicts us, it instructs us, it reminds us, it warns us, and exhorts us. And the idea here is that the wisdom of the wise is meant to expose our foolishness. It's meant to prompt us toward righteousness. And sometimes it hurts. One said this, wise words not only bring pleasure and truth, uh, wise words not only bring pleasure and truth, therefore, but they will, they'll also bring pain as they dispel illusions and confront folly, thereby preventing the receptive listener, however reluctant a listener may be, from straying from the straight in the narrow path of life. God's word is meant to convict us. It's meant to expose us. It's meant to hurt at times as we feel the pain of our foolishness and our error and our sin. You know, it goes with the gospel as well. The gospel comes to us in this way, the way that God communicates the truth about salvation. The gospel has to hurt us before it heals us. It has to expose sin before it reveals to us a savior. And when the sinner kicks against the goads, as it were, it only causes more pain. Interestingly, this is the illustration that Paul uses, or not the illustration, it's the the words that God uses in speaking to Paul and calling him to ministry. In Acts 26, 14, he says this. Paul's recounting about his vision that he saw of the Lord on his road uh, as he was uh, on the road to Damascus when God called him. He said this in verse 14, and when he had fallen to the ground, and when we had fallen to the ground, those who were with him as well, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he said this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. In that situation, he's simply saying this, is that he's referring to Paul's resistance to the gospel, to Paul's resistance to the establishment of the church. And he's saying it's hard for you to kick against the work of God, essentially, and it's hard for you to kick and resist this new call of God upon his life, which was ultimately to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But he says here that it's hard to kick against the goads, it's hard to, it's going to be painful if you reject and if you try to resist the work of God in your life. And in the same way, that's how it is if we do not listen to the word of God, if we do not listen to the wisdom of God. It is a goad, and if we kick against it, we're going to experience the consequences of that. We're going to suffer. But if we receive instruction 
Then he describes those as like masters of collections who accumulate well-driven or well-planted nails. That is, these words of wisdom are firmly planted, they're trustworthy, and they're profitable uh, to those who hear. But now here's where I want to take you, and this is where we'll emphasize now. Look at what he says and how this all works together. He says in verse 11, the words of the wise men of goads, that's the function of the word of God, of scripture, of the wisdom that is revealed by those God raises up to be teachers of his people. He says, and masters of these collections are like well-driven rails, and look at the well nails, and look at the last part, they are given by one shepherd. They are given by one shepherd. Now, in this context, the idea of shepherd here could be a reference to either Solomon or to wisdom writers in general. Some take it that way. However, if you have a New American Standard and an English Standard Version, you have a capital S there. Uh, The translators rightly understood that this is a reference to God, and as do most commentators. And it's interesting to note here, then, that the ministry of Solomon is described as that as a preacher, and the ministry of God is described as a shepherd. Both of them are designed, really, to picture pastoral care, pastoral care of God's people. Here, then, is a wonderful statement about the nature of Scripture. And this is the conclusion, really, where... I want us to notice, at least this morning, this wonderful statement about the nature of Scripture. Consider this, that God has spoken. God is the one who had given, in this context, Solomon the gift, and by extension, all of the writers of wisdom and the writers of Scripture. He had given them words. He had worked through their diligence to reveal his will and his way to his people. And the first thing I would have you just notice this about the nature of Scripture is that God reaches to man in relationship. It's not so implicit, it's explicit. He reaches to man in relationship. He's given by one shepherd. God is the one who is determined to communicate with people. Not only has he made man, but he is determined to communicate with them. He is determined to speak and reveal himself in a way that fosters relationship with him. God created man for relationship, to have fellowship. Now, while God is incomprehensible in terms of the fullness of knowing him, we can't know him comprehensively, but he can be known truly, and God desires to be known truly. God, in fact, demands to be known truly. This is the very heart of the covenant, that God would be known, that God would be served, and that God would be loved. Listen to the way he describes this picture of this his ultimately fulfilling that for himself in the new covenant. He says, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. And later he says this, speaking of the ultimate intention of his saving and redeeming work. He says this, this is in Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember them no more. God desires that he be known, and God is known through the words that he gives us. He is known through scripture. There is, in fact, here a subtle anticipation of Christ. And you say, where in the world are you getting that? 
Look at what he says there. He says, they are given by one shepherd. Clearly a reference to God. Clearly a reference to the God of Israel. He was known as the shepherd of Israel. That would have been readily understood by the readers who heard it. But here's what's interesting. This precise phrase is used only three other times in Scripture. And it's translated as such, and it is a precise phrase, same, same words, same arrangement in both Hebrew and one time in Greek. It's used twice in the book of Ezekiel. And it's used twice in the book of Ezekiel to anticipate the coming and the future ministry of the Messiah. Let me just read these to you. Ezekiel 34, 23, and then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. In Ezekiel 37, 24, he says, my servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, same terms, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep statutes and observe them. It's used one time in the New Testament. John chapter 10, verse 11 and 16, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. And then he later says in verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Ultimately, there is, within the canon of Scripture, within the fuller intention of God, even by using this language, here in anticipation to say that God is concerned about bringing his people into relationship through his word and that relationship is that his people would know him as they are known by God and the ultimate expression of that would be the living word of God, the eternal son in flesh. Think about that, the ministry of Christ. He's called the eternal word in John chapter one. He is the means he is the member of the triune Godhead through which God communicates his will. He is the living word of God. He is the living word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And what was the purpose of his becoming flesh and dwelling among us? He says in verse 18 that he might reveal God. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, he has explained him. He has explained him. He has revealed him. He came ultimately to reveal God, and he did that through the words that he spoke as well as with his own life. The words that he spoke were the words of God, the words of the Father. They are the words that he spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit whom he had without measure. It's through these words that the disciples were to come to know him, that we are to come to know him. Listen to this. He says, this is eternal life, John 17, 3, in his prayer to the Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says, I've glorified you on earth by accomplishing what you've given me to do. He, he prays that God would be glorified with the glory, his own glory in the Son. In verse 6, he said this. This is where I'm going to get it. I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. How did he manifest God to them by giving them his word? And then what is the result of that? Verse 7, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Listen, verse 8, the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came from you and believed that you sent me. In other words, God revealed himself to us in words. 
He came to us as a living word. The ministry of Christ, which is the incarnate word, was to reveal God through words. Words that were given to his disciples, words that would later be written down for us so that we could ponder them and think about them and come to know God. Now, another point with that in relation to Scripture, because this is an incredible statement, is that in Scripture, God communicates himself and his will to us through men. Again, that was repeated, but now I want to take it in a little bit more. He accomplishes his work sovereignly through men, through people. He governs it. He ordains it. But he accomplishes his will through his people, whom he raises up. And in Scripture, this is, has a particular glory. He says, The words of wise men are like groads. Masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. It is in this giving by the shepherd. It is given in a way that his people would be warned and instructed and built up in the way of righteousness. This is then the dual authorship of Scripture. Scripture is both the product of man and of God, with God as the primary agent. You'll remember that verse in the New Testament that God breathed out Scripture. That is, God breathed it out through men by the power of the Holy Spirit. He breathed out the written word of God, the words that we have on the pages of Scripture that all scripture is God-breathed. He's not referring to the inspiration of the writers, but to the actual product of the writers, that it is the word of God itself that was breathed out by God through men, so that a man can say, thus saith the Lord. Now let's just briefly consider this idea. Solomon was given ability. He was given the grace of wisdom. He was given an intellect. He learned He added learning to that ability. He thought, he considered, he meditated. He did his best to communicate in the most pleasing and acceptable way according to all the particulars of his own personality, his own experiences, his own culture, his own language. And he wrote in such a way under the guidance of the Spirit that when he wrote his words of wisdom, those words that he wrote were exactly the words that God wanted written so that as Solomon searched out, pondered, thought, considered how to write, in the most delightful way that what was the product of his doing that was exactly what God wanted to say. They're words given by one shepherd. God works through the effort of men. Consider the example of Luke, and I'm just gonna mention this to make a larger point here. In Luke chapter one, he says this, Luke, in writing to the, the gospel of Luke, says this, he says, I have many have undertaken to, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us. By those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught. Again, I want you just to see the connection there, a simple point. Luke studied, he learned, he compiled, he thought, he arranged, he made decisions in his composition. He had a purpose and a goal, which was to another purpose. 
which was to another person. And in all of that, God was orchestrating and designing and guiding and affecting everything that he did in such a way that every decision he made, every ounce of information that he had, every way that he phrased what he phrased was exactly what God wanted to say. So that Solomon could say here, they are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. The wisdom that I give you is not merely the wisdom of man. It is the wisdom of God. And God worked through that effort. This is the glory of Scripture. And Scripture is all the time speaking in that way. This could go on and on. Let me give you just a few examples. That when we read on the pages of Scripture, the words of Moses, the words of Paul, and go down the list, We are reading the words of God. So in Matthew 15, 4, Matthew records to us, For God said, You shall honor your mother and your father. In Mark 7, 10, he gives the exact same phrase, and he says, Moses said. So who said it? Moses or God? The answer is yes. They both did. It's dual authorship. In Hebrews 3, 7, the writer says this, Just uh, the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's quoting from Psalm 95, 7, which is unsigned. But the writer of Psalm 95, 7 is saying those words, and yet it could just as easily be said that the Holy Spirit says. And so the point here is simply this is that God shepherds his people, he guides his people, he draws his people into relationship, he loves his people, he warns his people, he judges his people, he builds up his people through the words that he gives to men. It's how he shepherds his people. It's through the written word of God. Now this is the ground then for both the authority and the sufficiency of scripture, as well as every other attribute, its clarity, its truthfulness, its trustworthiness, its unity, and its inerrancy. Scripture, ultimately having one source in God, is the revelation of the all-knowing God, the omniscient God. And that means that when we come to Scripture, although it is through men, it is men under the influence and direction of the Holy Spirit, and it goes beyond the mere ability of men. So Solomon wrote wisdom through the wisdom that God had given him, the abilities that God had given him, and yet... He wrote far beyond himself as well. Just listen to this. He says, uh, this is out of 2 Peter. Know first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Which is simply to say this, that as men wrote Scripture under the influence of the Holy Spirit, The truth that they understood and that they revealed was not a product of their own human insight into life or spiritual things. It was specifically sourced in the ministry of the Holy Spirit who carried them along in such a way that they understood, thought, and recorded exactly what God wanted, even as they were writing. And so that when we have the records of Scripture... If you ever notice, it's amazing that we have events written about generations after they occurred. Think of the account of creation. And yet we have details about the thoughts of men, the motives of men, details that none other would have known except for those who were there long before those who actually wrote about those events. He carried men along as they wrote, and they were able to understand the things given to them by God. 
It's because scripture is given by the omniscient God that he sees through the through the the, the heart of man in such a way, with such depth and clarity, that he could say in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Okay, now why is this important? I mean, there's obviously more to say. Because of this, if someone says or feels that Scripture is fine as a general religious book, but it's not sufficient to deal with the real issues of the heart and the difficult matters of life, then the problem is not with Scripture, it's with the person. God says here that Scripture is a goad. If you don't experience the convicting Word of God, it's not because Scripture isn't convicting in revealing our thoughts and intentions, it's the problem with the way that you're reading it. It could be a lack of the Holy Spirit. I'll give some other reasons. Scripture is meant to be, to be everything. If you're looking for other things outside of Scripture to fulfill what God had intended Scripture for, it's to not understand the nature of Scripture. Now, why is it then that some could come to the Word of God given by one shepherd designed to convict, comfort, rebuke, and build up and not experience that work of it in their heart? Well, let me give you just a couple and then we're going to bring it home in verse 12. Let me give you just a couple. And again, I'm mentioning these briefly. One, it is because we read Scripture superficially. We read Scripture superficially. We read it as, as though it were some kind of sometimes cheap novel that you might get for 50 cents on a rack at a used bookstore. We don't read it with much more thought or intention than that sometimes. And so we come up then with superficial applications and so the command to love just means that I have to have nice feelings about someone. But we don't consider the fact that love rejoices in the truth and not in unrighteousness. That love rebukes where there's sin. Sometimes it means admonishing the unruly. Sometimes it means excluding those who are unrepentant, such in Matthew 18. Sometimes we'll read superficially and just say, the word says, do not judge. And so therefore that means I never make any kind of discerning rebuke or correction for someone or calling out sin, not realizing that the God commands us everywhere to confront sin. You who are spiritual, go to such a one who is caught in a trespass. If a brother is sinning, you are go to that brother in sin, first one, then two, then three, then the church, and then he's out if he doesn't repent. There's the judging that he's speaking of there is we are not to sit in a place of superiority and condemn, sit in the throne of God that he alone has and execute a self-righteous judgment on that person. But we are first to see the log in our own eyes and then look at the speck. That's just an example. We read sometimes scripture superficially. And by reading it superficially, we also sometimes are not protected against false doctrine. And so you have a whole... Religion and some who are drawn back into the error of the Roman Catholic Church that holds that the grace of God began with Christ, but the justification of God is completed by our working along with the merits that Christ enabled us to work out on our own in the Spirit so that we might be justified and we might be made pure and we might make ourselves holy enough to enter into heaven except for what we can't do and that's burned off in purgatory. How do they get that? Because... Out of all of the clarity of Scripture, James says in James chapter 2, I, we see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Read superficially, that causes confusion to some. 
But then doing the hard work of understanding the argument of James, understanding the language of James, understanding the argument of Paul, the context of Paul, the language of Paul, what Paul is arguing against and what James is saying, we realize very clearly that he is complimenting exactly what Paul said that says if you are saved, you must also have works. James says the same thing. James, Paul is talking about how a man is justified before God. James is talking about how we prove that justification before God. So a man is justified by works is to say in that context, as that term is used in Romans 3, a man is vindicated in his faith by works. It's authenticated. It comes to completion. Not unlike John talks about in 1 John, the love of God is made perfect in our obedience and keeping his commandments. Is God's love imperfect outside of that? No, of course not. But it's brought all the way to prove its full and completed work in an individual when it produces a life of change that walks in the light and not in the darkness and according to the truth. So this is one reason why Scripture doesn't have this power because it's read superficially and people are led to all kinds of false doctrine and don't know its power in life to be a goad and a well-driven nail. And sometimes we don't realize the sufficiency and the riches and the treasure that are in God's word because we don't put the work in. One person said this. I love this statement on this. He says, too many people in evangelical churches and schools today simply assume that certain difficult problems they encounter are beyond the purview of Scripture. The real problem is that they are not really devoted to Scripture. They haven't committed themselves to the daily reading and application of the Word of God. Thus, they lack genuine discernment and biblical understanding. If they truly studied scripture, they would know that it is the Christian's one true source of spiritual strength and wisdom. It is the all-comprehensive resource God has given us for dealing with the issues of life. When Christians abandon that resource, it's no wonder that they struggle spiritually. And if we don't put the time in, if we don't put the work in, then all of the effort of God in raising up writers, all of the effort that Solomon put into writing truth correctly, all of the divine wisdom that is there and recorded for us in the pages of Scripture will, become, will be unknown and will struggle. Secondly, another reason sometimes that we don't know Scripture in this way is that we have a wrong expectation from Scripture. We want Scripture to function sometimes like a magic book. Have you ever heard a statement like this? I read Scripture and been reading my Bible, but it didn't work. It didn't work. That's right up there with, I tried Jesus, but it didn't work. It didn't work. Which means, essentially, it did not make me feel better, and it didn't make my problems go away. That's essentially what that means. I don't feel better and happy in the way that I want, and I still have my problems. But however, Scripture is not a magic book. Scripture doesn't work for us. Scripture works when we understand it as the revelation of God and it leads us to trust him unto salvation, when it leads us to trust him in the midst of trials, when in our trust and our struggle and our wrestling through the difficulties of life, through our own sin inside of us and committed outside of us, and we learn to see God's hand in it like Joseph, as Tim has been taking us through, Pastor Tim, to say that he could look back and say, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Why? Because he knew his God. When we learn to trust God and not lean on our own understanding and we're shaped into the character of Christ. Scripture doesn't work. Christ doesn't work. He's submitted to and trusted as the Lord of heaven and earth, as the only Savior of men. He doesn't work. Scripture doesn't work unless it shapes us and molds us into the image of Christ. But sometimes that's not how people go to it. And sometimes maybe that's you. 
The function of Scripture is to draw us to trust Him, to avoid sin, to walk righteously, to teach us by repetition, examples, principles, and direct statements. And for that reason, Paul, Peter could say, God has granted to us everything necessary for life and godliness, that sufficiency according to the true knowledge of him. Where does this knowledge come from? By holding our fingers together under a tree out in a field? No. It comes, the true knowledge of him, through the word of God as it's applied by obedient faith to life. And then we know him. If anyone's willing to do my word, he will know whether it's true. If anybody's willing to do the will of the Father, he'll know whether my word is true, Jesus said. And so it's a knowledge that comes through Scripture. Now, Solomon is not a great example of this, right? He was given wisdom. He was given wisdom such that he's the writer of three books of Scripture, and yet his own life was an example of not heeding the wisdom that God gave him. And so it's possible to know and be diligent and to get lost in that too and lack the devotion that is required as well. That first point on that last, just to end it, is simply this, that you come to Scripture and realize that God has communicated to us in a way that can be understood. He's done it through men whom he's gifted and carried along by the Spirit. He's recorded it for us on the pages of Scripture. And it is sufficient and complete in every way. But we must, first of all, know the shepherd. And then we must believe the word he's given to us. And we must obey it. And it's in the context, too, of how we have wisdom in youth. Remember our creator. But let me get to this last point in verse 12. This diligence towards scripture, this diligent with the giftedness and the opportunities that God gives us also requires discernment. And this is verse 12, and I'll mention this briefly. He says in verse 12, But beyond all this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion is wearying to the body. Now, this could be taken in a couple of different ways, a few ways. He could be saying, be careful not to give too much attention to those writings that are not as inspired and are just the product of men rather than Scripture. He could be warning one set against the zeal for learning without a true appreciation of the truth and the wisdom contained in it. In other words, it's just learning for learning's sake knowledge for knowledge's sake. Or he could be giving his son, which most likely may be Rehoboam or just being spoken sometimes like a teacher did to his pupils, that idea, it's common. Uh, He could be giving a warning to his son, a warning about the writings of the wise are dangerous. Well, the third is least likely, uh, and both ideas of one and two are true and consistent with Scripture, but the idea seems to be this. Uh, is that it's an encouragement to be aware of spending too much time and putting too much effort in those things beyond what was given by God. So beyond this, my son, beyond this, that is, those wise sayings collected and given to us by one shepherd, beware of just excessive learning. It's not a prohibition to reading anything other than Scripture or reading things about Scripture. It's a warning to not let our priorities be skewed. In other words, the very foundation of our life must be then a growing knowledge of the word of God. And let me, at least two dangers here. If that's not the case, then scripture will have less influence on our hearts and minds, but scripture is the way that God saves and sanctifies. He saves us through the revelation of Christ in his word. He sanctifies us through that same revelation. And so if scripture is not and we let ourselves get carried away with other things, then we're cutting ourselves off from the primary source of the Spirit's work in our life if we don't make scripture the priority. Secondly, 
We will be less and less able to discern the truth, even as John warned us about in his small epistle this morning. We will be more susceptible to being deceived and being led here and there by every wind of doctrine. If we read Scripture superficially, if we don't apply ourselves to understand it, then we are going to be open then to deception and cutting ourselves off from God's sanctifying source. And so he says, be warned about this. There's a lot of things out there. It's easy to give our time and attention to it, but be careful to make sure that Scripture, that which is given by the one shepherd, is at the foundation of our lives and our energy. We should read and think and learn as broadly and deeply as we can, but that must never take precedence over our commitment to the Word of God. Now, he's going to bring all of this home to us next week, but what I would leave us with here is this, this morning. Jesus said that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Now, clearly those who hear his words, that was directly applicable to them in that way. But how about through the preceding generations? How do we hear the voice of the Christ? How do we hear the voice of the shepherd? Well, he speaks to us in one place, here, in his word. If you want to know Christ, if you want to know God, then you must know his word you must apply yourself to it. It must be the foundation of what you think, how you evaluate everything else is through the word of God. And so if you want to know God's comforting work in your life, if you want to God's, know God's wisdom in your life, if you want to know God's instruction in your life, or maybe you're still outside of Christ and you're still just trying to put all this together, the answer is the same to both. Go to scripture. Talk about scripture. Ask others about it. What does it mean? What does he say? How do I obey and how do I follow? God has been so gracious to give us his word and the goal is that he would draw us into relationship with himself. I pray that you know that relationship. Let me pray and then I'll close this with a benediction. Father, thank you for this, your word. As John told us this morning, as you recorded for us in that little epistle of 2 John, it's all about the truth because it is the truth that draws us to know you as you are. It is the truth that tells us the way things really are. It's reality. We can't escape reality, and so we would be wise to know the truth because we're accountable to it. It is the truth that reveals to us our Savior and teaches us how not only to know you in all of your glories, but how to walk with you in this world. But this requires your work, Holy Spirit. You are our ultimate teacher. Otherwise, a veil lies over our eyes and we can read the word, but there is no glory of Christ in it. But then when the veil is removed, your glory is everywhere. I pray that for those who are outside of your saving grace, that you would reveal to them the glory of Christ and that evidence of that would be their hunger for your word. For us who, have, who know you, yet we can still know at times a dullness in our life, I pray that you would stir us up to see your glories afresh in the word of God to see the glories of our salvation and of our Savior, and that you would keep us faithful, and that we would be faithful communicators of your word to each other and encouragement and to the world and revealing and calling them to faith in Christ. And it is to that end I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So.